Joel, chapter number 2, verse 12 through 14, out of Amos, pray for us, and then Anthony is going to bring God's word. Let's give our hearts in attention towards God's word. Joel writes and says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And then Amos chapter number five says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Or you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, who darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out in the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word, for who you are and how you have worked throughout history and are working in our midst today. We ask that your word would shape us and mold us. It would correct us and lead us. And God, we would desire you and your way more than anything else today. And so would you speak through your servant, Anthony, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yell. Yeah, I'm going to yell this morning. Well, we are in the Minor Prophets, so I might yell a little bit. You know. No, um, we're back, uh, right back to our very broad overview of the entire Bible, especially if you're, uh, it's your first time here. We are attempting to cover the entire Bible within a year, and so far, uh, so good. Uh, so uh, that we have bearings, and we conti- continue with the uh, attempt to alliterate every book, we were doing that as well, um, for alliteration and framework, the text of, for today is, uh, for today's text, I'm sorry, is prophets, prescriptions, and promises, okay? Prophets, prescriptions, and promises. Now, this morning, we find ourselves firmly fixed in an examination of the minor prophets. Uh, for context, Uh, This portion of the study started out um, of order, actually, Um, several weeks ago, uh, maybe even a couple months ago, was it? A couple months ago, Mike kicked off uh, our series on the Minor Prophets um, by teaching Habakkuk, and I heard it was pretty awesome. Uh, Last week, John continued uh, our exploration through the Minor Prophets by uh, examining the very uh, intriguing, interesting, and even strange and weird uh, subject matter posed to us in the book of Hosea. Um, When all is said and done, we'll have covered all all 12 of the Minor Prophets. Uh, Today, we'll cover two of them, as we've already uh, noticed, Joel and Amos. 
And here's a, a pro tip before we begin on, uh, on the minor prophets. Uh, the, po- the prophets being referred to as minor uh, is only a reference to length and not significance. It's, uh, it's not like the difference between triple uh, A and the majors, okay? Do you guys, anybody remember the Tucson Toros? Uh, I, I, was, I, had to, I had to Google if the Tucson Toros still existed. They don't. Um, apparently, it's the, the San Diego Padres uh, are the AAA affiliate now. Not that anybody wanted to know any of that. Um, now, the significance of the minor prophets is this. They serve in giving us a glimpse into the spiritual landscape and history of Israel. And as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project explains, within each landscape, they function as, uh, and I like this, covenant watchdogs. I like that. that he's given them the, the, the term covenant watchdogs. You see, the minor prophets, in each of their eras, they are meant to actually challenge the status quo within and among the people of God. And so I really, really like the minor prophets. They are, they are challengers. They are getting in the face of uh, the current culture that exists. So uh, in terms of the prophets, Joel and Amos... Uh, among the twelve, are some unique and interesting characters. In fact, if they were a part of a boy band, uh, Joel would be the mysterious one, and uh, Amos would be the blue-collared one. And you're wondering, what does that mean, boy band? Well, if you're a boomer, think Beatles. Uh, if you're Gen X, think NSYNC or um, Backstreet Boys. If you're millennial, think One Direction. And if you're Gen Z, think BTS. Um, right? That, does that like encapsulate all the boy bands? Um, uh, Joel is mysterious because the Bible tells us a very little bit about him. In fact, if you have ever studied Joel, you'll know that according to verse 1, chapter 1, this is the only thing we're given about his identity and therefore mysterious. All we know is the name of his father. And it's funny, on Father's Day, all we know is the name of his father, Pethuel. Pretty cool name. Uh, again, like I'll, I'll co-opt John's joke. If you're looking for any baby names, Pethuel is a, prob- is a, is a good one, maybe. I guess not. Um, um, beyond, uh, beyond that, uh, his message came to Israel at a time where there was a plague of locusts um, coming through and ravaging, and it ultimately ravaged the land. Uh, Joel's concern was to address this day of the Lord and to remind them that the locust plague was only the beginning. In fact, if you read through the rest of Joel, you'll know that he is also proclaiming a future judgment that they must anticipate as well. Because there is so little known about Joel, it makes it very difficult to actually fit him into any historical framework. Uh, in fact, the theologians and the commentaries that I consulted in my readings, because you know, I don't get to talk to any of these people. Uh, they were very much d- divided on the matter. Uh, how, however, they are all not divided on whether, wh- whether he be pre, uh, pre mid, or post-exilic uh, in terms of his uh, function as a prophet. They all agree that the prophet Joel still speaks hope to even our current generation. Now, Amos, on the other hand, we have so much more 
about him. The Bible tells us so much more. We have uh, information on him. Uh, Amos was a, a, a shepherd slash fig farmer um, from Tekoa, a village that was uh, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. His vocation was working as a, a blue-collar farmer uh, worker. And you can read a, a, little, a little bit of those uh, tidbits in chapter 7, 14, and 15. And what I really like about him is that this blue-collar work, it distinguishes him from the religious establishment of the day, which subsequently uh, makes him a bit of a punk rocker. Uh, and I really like that. I really love, love when someone from outside of the establishment, it, it comes into the inside to speak some truth. Now, if you read 1 Kings chapter 12 for further context, here's what it says in summary. Uh, Amos, he ministered in the era of Jeroboam II. Um, Jeroboam is remembered for restoring great wealth in the northern kingdom and building a competing temple complete with golden calves to, to rival Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Saying it uh, that way, it sort of sounds benign, but these developments or advancements, and there's also other things you can call these, they came at quite the cost. You see, the wealthy in Amos' day, was, the, the wealthy ignored the poor, sold them into debt slavery, and denied them legal representation. Additionally, God never intended Israel to have multiple places of worship. The competing temple located in Bethel actually housed a plurality of gods. From Asherah, the god of sex, to Anat, the god of war, uh, idolatry had run rampant among the people of God. And as you might have guessed it, all of this came at quite a price tag. Um, and it's this. Here's the price tag on all that. It resulted in dehumanization of people, uh, divided worship in the land, and of course, a really, really disappointed God. And that's even a second alliteration that we can attach to the prophets. So a two-for-one, John. How about that? These are the times that Joel and Amos are sent to speak into and speak their messages into. And of course, you can't have a prophet unless you have some of their prescriptions. And if you're very familiar with the prophets, whether they be major or minor, you know, you'll know that their prescriptions are pretty much the same. And it's this. They call a nation into repentance. They call a nation to repent. We read a little bit of it earlier with John, and I will refresh your memory. Joel, in chapter 2, 12 and 13, says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Amos, to summarize his call of repentance to the people of God, simply says this, Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. If you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard this call from the prophets many times, 
But what does it mean to repent? That's kind of what we're going to be uh, addressing today. What does it mean to repent? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls it a grieving and hatred over sin and a turning from it unto God. Really good definition. And Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff is helpful in his systematic theology because he distinguishes it by breaking it up into three separate elements. Intellectual, emotional, and volitional. In fact, what he's saying is that repentance means to know something, to feel something, and to do something. The gift that Joel and Amos give us is that the intellectual aspect of repentance is assumed in their text, but what they do is they paint really important pictures of the emotional and the volitional aspects of repentance. Joel focuses on internal repentance while uh, Amos uh, focuses on external. I've got a bunch of Uh, verses up there that we're going to look through, but Joel shows us that repentance requires proper lament. Here they are in, in rapid fire. He says in chapter one, beginning in verse five, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the fields has perished. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate it fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Joel's call um, in an emotional perspective is to call the people of God to a sincere sorrow over their sin. As Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, once wrote, and who wrote, an entire book on the doctrine of repentance, he he said this, he said, sin must drown in the tears of repentance. Joel, he calls them to fill contrition over what they've done and to actually cry over their sin. And it reminded me of something that Thomas Akempis wrote in The Imitation of Christ. He said this, he said, I would rather feel contrition than to know how to define it. Basically, what the Puritans and the prophets are all saying is that we should really feel something a a genuine sorrow over breaking the heart of God. He goes on in the imitation of Christ 
challenging Christians to think about it a little further. And he says, for what would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we live without grace and the love of God? He's saying it matters. How we feel and how we love matters. Basically, what Joel is getting after is the grieving of and the hating of sin uh, and hating of our own sin. We need to feel it and then we turn to God. We turn to the goodness of God. Now, for a little interesting tidbit on the book of Joel, uh, additionally, uh, Joel calls the people to deep repentance, but unlike the other prophets who get into very specific ways in which God's people have broke the covenant, he provides them and us with no particulars. He doesn't actually address any particular ways in which they have broken the heart of God. What many commentators have all agreed upon is that there's an assumption that the people of God, hearing the message of Joel, they actually know what they did. And they don't have to, they don't have to hear anything. In fact, um, you know exactly what this is like. If you're a, if you ha- if you're a decent parent, or you've had decent parents, you know there's great wisdom in leaving space for confession, right? If you've ever had your kid uh, get into something, you know, mis- some misbehaving, you know what it's like to, to let them come to you and say, well, what's going on? And then just give it a nice, long, uncomfortable pause. <laughs> right? Because a lot of times, they know exactly what they did. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, 98% of the time, I knew exactly what I did. If I had a little bit of space, I would not only confess what I did that day, but if I was feeling real bad, I'd go back a few months. It's kind of like uh, Chunk and the Goonies, right? When he's sitting down with the Fratellis, and he goes basically for his whole childhood of transgressions to where it culminates of him talking about making fake puke in the balcony at the movie theater and pouring it over on everybody and causing everybody into a one big giant vomit fest. It's a great movie. Um, but Joel is interesting in the book because he leaves this space. You don't know what's going on. You don't know exactly the specifics, but he just leaves this space and there's this assumption that they know what they did. There's great wisdom in that. I think there's something to really take to heart in, in terms of that. Amos, on the other hand, he's really specific. And that's, I love the juxtaposition between the, the minor prophets today because they're so different. Like I said, Amos, on the other hand, is very specific. The assessment on Israel, it actually starts in chapter 2, but we're going to jump into chapter 5 and read some of his critique over the people of God. We'll start in 5.11. He says, this is what they've done. Here is how they've sinned. Because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted uh, pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. 
Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so uh, the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hey, evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be with it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then jumping to verses 21 and 24, he says, here's, here's an even deeper indictment on the people of God. He says, I hate. I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away uh, from me the, the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let Justice rolled down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, Amos, he focuses on the volitional side of repentance. In other words, he's focusing on the acts that must come out of repentance, or the fruit that must be born out of repentance. In other words, he's saying, he's telling them how they ought to be functioning within the world that God has placed them in, And he's showing them the actions that need to be taken if there's going to be actual change in the land. If society is going to change, if God's people are going to have an impact of being salt and light in the world, here's how they're going to have to live. But here's the indictment, as David Allen Hubbard uh, says in his commentary. He says, their liturgies should have led to loving action, but they did not. And that is a great tragedy when their, their worship and their, their, uh, their sacrifice, all of it was abhorrent in the eyes of God. And therefore, the thing that should have been beautiful, leading them into loving their, each other and their neighbors, showing the nations why they, were in, uh, why they were in the land of Canaan in the first place, because they were supposed to show the world who God is and what he is like by the lives that they lived. And because they had failed on that front, their worship was a big waste of time. And I'll tell you what, there's so many applications to our own lives if we think about it. But righteousness and justice ought to have been an ever-flowing stream out of the people of God. But right now, they're in a drought, and they're in a drought of their own making. Man, Think about uh, what we're, the season we're in with, with the lack of water right now, right? What a, what a picture. When you, when you uh, tap all your resources and you don't think about any of the consequences or the future, um, there's a lot to, be, uh, to think through there and chew on. But the people of God are in a spiritual drought, and it's a drought that they've made themselves. Amos uh, intentionally, he inserts two, world, two words into the text which we would all be wise to take to heart this morning. He introduces us to words, righteousness and justice, and he says they must be flowing like streams and rivers out of our lives. Righteousness is sedekah, which literally means equity despite social difference. 
And justice means mishpat, or is mishpat, and it means actions taken to correct injustice. What's interesting here is that the Bible, and I love it, I love, I love how um, progressive the Bible is. I know that's a scary word in, in, today's, in today's vernacular, but the, the thoughts around doing social justice was God's idea, just so you know. And now, yes, it's been co-opted by people who have no heart for the gospel. But you understand, social justice started in the Bible. And I think that's fascinating. It's just like, it's just like today, you know, Christian has a negative connotation with people. Well, Christ, Christians got their name um, in Antioch because they looked like little Christs. So I'm not letting the culture take away really cool terms that the Bible has given us and the ideas that the Bible give us. Does that make sense before, we, before you uh, label me a heretic today? <laughs> before I get labeled heretic? In, here's the thing, guys. Here's the, here's the fascinating, fascinating thing about Amos. is that In the days of Amos, Israel saw their GDP rise into the stratosphere. But they also saw their sons sold for a pair of sandals. That's what was going on during the days of Amos. You can, actually, you can read that in chapter 2, verse 6. Literally being sold for a pair of sandals. 2 Kings um, chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, illustrates this point wonderfully. And if you are a reader of the Bible, you are probably familiar with this story. Do you remember Elijah and the widow's oil? It's a really cool story, right? Because Elijah comes to the rescue, this widow's rescue, and, he, and she fills up not only the vessels that she has in her home with oil, but she's running around getting any vessel that she can possibly find, and he's filling all of those up as well. But do you remember why? Do you remember why she was needing oil and why he was filling up those jars? Well, because she had lost her husband. He was gone, and that left her as a, as a widow. And her two sons were going to be taken by her creditors as slaves. That's what was going on during the days of Amos and Joel and the rest of the 12 minor prophets, and the major ones, too. God's people were not living in accordance to the covenant that God had established with them. They were not living from grace. They were not living from love. And not only were they putting a lot of pressure on each other, they were no good to their neighbors. They were actually, they co-opted the gods of the time, and they make compromises in their worship. And as you can read out of Amos, uh, God was not stoked on it. He said, it's all a bunch of noise. I mean, it's so cool. We read Elijah and the widow, and we say, it's so cool, that miracle, so, so cool. But we should also be heartbroken that the miracle was necessary in the first place. Right? That it was necessary. If God's people were just living out of covenant and covenant obedience, 
it wouldn't be necessary. Amos tells us that if God's people are ever going to understand what true repentance looks like, then righteousness and justice must flow consistently and freely from them. In other words, they should be doing good work in society. Their good work will change society. And that is one of the most incredible thoughts around the kingdom of God here and now, is that if we are loving each other and loving our neighbors, people will get an, a vision of the kingdom here on earth through his people. So I don't know about you. I find it all highly fascinating and worthy of consideration. Now, we've, looked at, we've talked about the prophets, we continue to talk to them, and we understand um, the prescriptions that they've given to the people, but what are their promises? Because you really can't have prophets unless you have promises from them. And I'm going to give them to you rather quickly because I think I've um, taken a little too much time. Um, the prophets are really good in telling the people that it's never too late to repent. It's never too late to hate and grieve your sin and turn to God. The prophets are consistent about that. And I love in Joel chapter 2, verse 17, at the very end, he says, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? In other words, he's saying, you guys don't have to say that. You don't have to say we're godless or without his hand over our life. All you have to do is turn to him. But I also love, and you're probably familiar with Joel 2.25, is there that, that uh, they're reminded by God himself that I will restore to you the years that the locust have eaten. The good news about repentance is that there is also restoration that God can bring about one's life as we turn back to the living God. And then perhaps my favorite comes from Joel 2.28 because it's also found in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. On the, and that's a reminder of uh, what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down upon his people. In short form, here's what God promises them then and he promises them something future and more beautiful. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You guys, what God is saying is that not only is there repentance in store for the, for the, for the man, for the woman who repents, but there's also regeneration in store as well. We can call out to God and not only uh, understand immense repentance, but we can also have true transformation in our lives as he compels us with his grace to love him further in life. In Amos, there's not a lot to, to delight in, except there is this little piece um, in, in chapter 9, verse 11. And it goes down to verse 15, but I'm just going to read verse 11. He says, In the day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. You see, Amos is telling them that there's someone greater coming to make all things right, make all things new. There's someone who is going to um, not just preach repentance, but will actually provide a way for repentance to be full and final when he goes to the cross and dies there. And we all know his name, Jesus. 
It's beautiful, the hope that is had. Even though you have to squint and look for it, you have to kind of search a little bit, it's there. The prophets are consistent in always providing a promise of hope in the midst of a, of a world that is filled with despair. And I don't know about you, that applies today as well. I hope. I hope it does for you. Because the world is weird, and it's a hot mess, but there's still hope in it if we have Jesus. So in conclusion, I was thinking about this, and you can't have a, I guess I can't, you can't have a, a, a sermon on Father's Day without a really terrible dad joke slash pastor joke. In, clu- in conclusion, Israel and, and Judah, we see, they have 99 problems, uh, but a prophet isn't one of them. <laughs> Which leads us to three questions that I'd like to challenge everyone with and think through as we wrap up this study. Uh, number one, from Joel and his perspective that he offers us, do we know ourselves enough to recognize our need for repentance, even though the specifics might not be staring us in the face? In other words, here's my opportunity to provide a long pause and say, do you know? Do you know what you need to bring to God? Do you, do you know what you have great and deep need for in your life? It's, that, it's, the, it's the, 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 the parent move, right? Just give you space. If you know, I, all I would say is good. That's a, that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. If you don't, um, there's a prayer for it. This comes out of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into everlasting, right? God says, just pray. He'll show you. He's faithful. Number two, is the explorations, uh, or I'm sorry, the exploitation uh, seen in Amos by God's people an aberration or do we still wrestle with this issue today? Is this kind of exploitation that we see in, uh, in the book still a, an issue today? Well, I was thinking about that, and I want to I be very delicate about this, and that's hard for me because I'm not a delicate human being. Um, but there's two things I'm, I'm lamenting. Two things I'm lamenting as I think through this study. Um, one is very, very serious. Um, you, some of you may or may not know that the SBC... Um, the largest denomination of Protestant churches in America are embroiled in controversy in the way they have mishandled reports of sexual abuse in the past. Uh, This week, after years of wrestling with the issue, they have made uh, the move to fix measures that would protect victims and prosecute violators of said uh, abuse. Now, I have so many thoughts about that, but I'll try and keep it concise because I celebrate the change that was happened and was voted on today by members of the SBC, that justice was done for victims. And if you know anything about the the conference, uh, there's a handful of those victims in the uh, the group voting, and that's that's heavy-duty stuff. Got someone reading over there. I celebrate the justice done 
and I celebrate the justice that will be done for future uh, victims. And I also lament the fact that this change was necessary in the first place. And I also lament that it took far too long to actually address it and do something about it. And the other thing I lament, the other thing that is concerning me as I consider the contents of, of the Minor Prophets is that it's really, really sad to see the way God's people can sometimes treat one another. We're a church, and there shouldn't be uh, so much nastiness within it. But there is, right? If we're honest, there is sometimes. There can be. And I was thinking about it. There are far too many ministries out there, and just so I'm fair, big, small, in every denomination, in which people within congregations are viewed as a mere cog in the machine. If you've been a part of church, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Where people are viewed as a mere cog in the machine. But if you know the Bible, you know that the Bible uh, does not employ machinery in its message. Actually, the body of Christ is described uh, as a body or a house. In other words, we're supposed to be seen as a family and as a body. And I tell you what, I love my body. I know I might need to take an appendix out, but I will grieve that. Um, but, mo but, but most of the parts I want to keep. My wife lost her gallbladder, but God bless it. Um, but, but you think about it. I've been, and, and here's, here's like some real transparency. I've been in ministry for 25 years now faithfully um, and, in, and vocationally by the grace of God. I've been able to do this as a gig. Like, I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm so grateful. Nobody has run me off yet. Um, yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing, guys. I know personally what it's like to feel like a cog in the machine, smashed in there, and then, and, and then the button is pressed to just go and, and run. And I've seen... Many of my friends see their gears just, and the, and the teeth on those, their gears just get shredded to bits. I lament today that people that I was um, co-laboring with 20 years ago are no longer in ministry anymore because they have been, they were grinded out and spit out of the machine. You see, exploitation still takes place. It's just, um, it's kind of got a little bit of a better varnish uh, on it. And, it, and I'm not comparing it to what was going on in Amos, but it's still lamentable. And also, guys, this is why we planted Union Church. We planted Union Church so that um, we would be family, that we would be a body, and that none of us, pastors included, would ever be seen as cogs that you just shove into the machine and press go, and then Hopefully, it keeps going until uh, we can find more cogs, right? That's what I lament as I think through the text today. But third, the last, the final question that I'd like to, um, you know, have us think about is probably the, the best and most important question. Is there good news and hope for us if we sincerely turn to Jesus in repentance? 
Well, the answer to that is yes. I hope you, I hope you agree with that. The answer is yes. And so, and so today, as we pray, as we close in prayer, let's be praying for our brothers and sisters, our brave brothers and sisters in the SBC who have made really hard decisions and are, go- and are still going through uh, a difficult season uh, in, of their lives. And yes, it, it may not be touching us, but it's touching so many others. And may we pray for them and lament with them. It's not our responsibility, but it is a beautiful thing to um, extend ourselves to the global body today and feel what they are feeling. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, Joel and Amos and their call um, of repentance and the call to repentance to you. Um, Father, as we consider going to the table today, may we understand that we are great sinners, but you are a great Savior. And we pray for the SBC as they go through challenging times, that you would continue to guide them and lead them and grant them courage to make the right decisions in the season in which they're in. Thank you for the justice that has been done for victims, and thank you for the future protections that they've set into place. And Lord, we pray you protect your church uh, in this world because um, this world needs your church. It needs a church with you at the head of it. And so Jesus, be the head. Continue to grant us grace. And Lord, we simply um, say, um, have mercy and, and please come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.